following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Hello, listeners around the world on radio, streaming, and podcast services. This is It's Not Therapy. I'm Leanna Kersner, and I am not a therapist, but I am your source for practical advice for everyday problems, using my top 10 sayings for checking in with your best self. This week, I'm going to ask you to excuse my wheezing. I am getting over a really awful cold, my first cold in four years. It hit me like a truck. I have asthma. I'm still recovering. Apologies in advance. But I'm here, and we're going to talk about a concept that gets thrown around a lot without a clear picture of what it is. We're going to talk about self-worth, specifically inherent self-worth. Now, inherent self-worth is a concept that's both simple and incredibly complex at the same time because it's the idea that you matter simply for being you. Yeah, I can hear you scoffing and rolling your eyes. I know when it's put like that, it sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? That phrasing, you know, you matter simply for being you, that phrasing begs the question, matter to whom? And that's where things get complex really fast. The belief that you and every other person has inherent worth is easy to say, but much harder to practice. Because the concept means that not only I as an individual, you as an individual have worth, but every other person also as inherent worth, just because they're a person. Even bad people have worth. In fact, bad people are the way they are because they don't see the inherent self-worth in everyone. And that's true that people who do bad things don't have a great sense of self-worth, no matter how arrogant they appear. The grandiosity that people talk doesn't necessarily reflect how they feel inside. So this episode, I'm going to speak totally personally about my take on self-worth. No guests, no experts, nothing, just me and you. The goal here is to get you thinking about the concept in a way that makes sense to you, because this is something that took me a really, really long time to figure out myself. This isn't intended to be prescriptive, meaning this isn't intended to tell you what to do because every person comes at their definition of their own worth in a different way. And that's why it's so hard for therapists who have to remain detached to elaborate on this concept. Now, if anything here sparks a question, a comment, a suggestion, go to nottherapyshow.com. That's nottherapyshow.com. Fill out the contact form, join our mailing list, or email me directly, liana at nottherapyshow.com, or check out Not Therapy Show on Twitter and Instagram. Now, the nice thing about being a peer counselor is that I don't have to follow the rules a therapist does. I don't have to stick to a particular method I'm officially trained in and licensed to practice. I can say... This is what worked for me as a starting point for other people to go, that doesn't feel quite right, but maybe this other thing will. I'm just a person talking to people, hence peer 
counselor. Now, my one of my earliest, at least, understandings of self-worth came through a book that was originally published in 1977 called The Big Orange Splot. It was written, and I believe drawn, by a guy named Daniel Manis Pinkwater. The Big Orange Splot is a story about a guy named Mr. Plumbean who lived on a street where all the houses were the same. Until one day, a seagull dropped a can of orange paint on Mr. Plumbean's roof. Splot, right? Big orange splot. Now, instead of repainting his house back to the way it was, Mr. Plumbean repainted the rest of the house to match the splot based on stuff he just thought was cool. And the house ended up looking like, well, a pride billboard with lions, a blonde lady, and steam shovels. But, you know, that's what Mr. Plumbean liked. We don't judge. He then added a clock tower, palm trees, and an alligator. Again, the book was published in 1977. It was a simpler time. <laughs> Mr. Plumbean's neighbors thought he'd gone nuts. They'd insisted he'd ruined the street. Anybody who lives in suburbia goes, yeah, I know that feel. But Mr. Plumbean said, my house is me and I am it. My house is where I like to be and it looks like all my dreams. Well, his neighbors thought he was crazy. They told Mr. Plumbean's next door neighbor to go talk some sense into him. So the next door neighbor went to Mr. Plumbean's for lemonade and they talked all night. The next day... The neighbor turned his house into a red and yellow boat. And he also said, my house is me and I am it. My house is where I like to be and it looks like all my dreams. One by one, the whole street came around to that way of thinking. Each house was an embodiment of good crazy. The street was no longer a neat street. It was our street is us and we are it. Our street is where we like to be, and it looks like all our dreams. And this was the greatest book ever when I was a kid, before I discovered the soul-destroying horrors of resale value and depersonalization when you're selling a house. I know, I know. I'm lucky to own a home right now. I hear you. Just, yeah, that was, what do you mean depersonalize? Big orange splot. The Big Orange Splot was foundational for me. It was a language that, no matter what else was going on, gave me permission to be weird. Mr. Plumbean's house was like one's ideal inner thoughts, where I like to be, looking like all my dreams. My weird was my worth. It's why one of the first questions I ask new clients is, what do you want? A lot of them don't have an answer. And that's probably because you have to feel like you have a sense of self-worth to want things. You need to feel like you matter to feel like you can want things because otherwise wanting things is dun, 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 selfish. Now, selfish is one of those words. It's one of the words I flag immediately for instant additional reconsideration. Was that redundant? Additional consideration. There we go. Selfish is up there with should, inappropriate, 
creepy and a bunch of other words that uh, the, the minute I hear them or they come out of the mouth, I'm like, oh, wait, is this what I really want to say? Sometimes these words are totally accurate. But other times they're used to shut someone down instead of listening and validating them. And if you're on the receiving end of that kind of validation, invalidation, excuse me, too often for too long, that invalidation destroys your sense of self-worth. Welcome to my years in university and working in Canadian television. <laughs> Masterclass right there on invalidation. Now, I'm not saying I didn't have invalidating influences before that. I, I, I did. But I had influences that validated me as well. I was very lucky to have multiple teachers who actually cared and appreciated my individuality. They encouraged me to be an individual. And once I got out of, you know, the Jane Finch public school system, yep, that's where I grew up. Once I got out of there, I lost that. Everywhere I turned, university forward, someone was telling me I was doing something bad or that I was overall bad. I didn't get a ton of positive reinforcement other than, you know, it was weird because I get A's on papers, but then derision and neglect and kind of, you know, from from professors and, and yeah, that, that was the real world in my late teens and early 20s. It was so strange. You know, no matter how I changed or adjusted, it was still wrong somehow. I just couldn't do anything, quote unquote, right. The words try being a little professional were a code for you don't matter, accept it or get out. Now, is this a good way to run a company or a school? No. Was it a common way to run a company in post-secondary institutions back then? Absolutely. And that's why workers are rebelling en masse against employers, why university students are rebelling against administration, and people in many places are rebelling against capitalism itself. You can only control people by making them miserable for so long before you break them or something breaks in them. And this is not me saying I'm anti-capitalist. I'm not. I just get why some people have that sentiment. Now, self-worth, how much and how solid your self-worth is, your sense of self-worth, that determines which way that something breaks or something breaks in you. You know, it determines which way that break happens. Resilience is treated as if it's innate, but it's not. Resilience is far from innate. Resilience is a learned skill. And resilience is reinforced by family and friends who have your back and structures that treat humans like humans. But how do you know if you had those things? And what if you didn't? Well, I'm going to take a break because I've been talking for a bit here. I'm going to take some time to cough. Um, and I'm going to come back with some suggestions 
to those those dilemmas. Again, if anything inspires a question, comment, or suggestion, please reach out. Leanna at Not Therapy Show by email. You can go to nottherapyshow.com with a contact form. That's pretty much all the website is right now, a contact form. We're working on more stuff. Or you can join our mailing list so you can get direct notifications from us. Not too often, just when we got something to say uh, at nottherapyshow.com or at nottherapyshow on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be back in a bit talking self-worth on It's Not Therapy. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. I am Leanna Kersner. I am not a therapist and I'm back on It's Not Therapy talking about self-worth, what it is, why it's important and how you develop it if you weren't raised in an environment that fostered it or at least how I developed it. And like I was saying before the break, no one starts with a sense of self-worth. We all start as extensions of our parents. Our entire framework for whether we're good or bad comes from the approval of the adults that look after us when we're kids. And every generation has screwed up their kids in a unique and generationally defining way. We're going to start with the boomers. Everybody loves to pick on the boomers, okay? But the boomers had to deal with their parents, known some places as the greatest generation. Don't let that go to your head. Well, they were traumatized from the world wars. And so the boomers ended up being the counterculture of the 1960s and 1970s, you know, when everything was kind of like it is now. Um, But that faded into the materialism of the greed is good yuppie 1980s. Do you remember the yuppies? Yeah, that was a thing back then. A Gen Xers like me. We were known as the slacker generation or generation apathy. We grew up in the late Cold War. And the messaging at us, you know, we were lazy. We were this. We were that. But we also would probably get nuked. And if we didn't get nuked, we'd have no jobs because of the aging population. And then we got the AIDS epidemic, you know. I'm not kidding. Teachers, I remember in grade 10, getting the ongoing lecture about the silver wave, the aging population. There's going to be no jobs for you. And the, the, the suggestion was go into computers. Those are guaranteed jobs. And so then there were too many computer scientists. Go system. What we realized as Gen X is that it was safest if we acted like we didn't care about anything plan was people would forget we existed and then we could do our thing now this may have worked a bit too well seeing as a lot of people forget that there's a generation between boomers and millennials now millennials may have gotten the roughest so far because millennials starting in the 1990s were subjected to that toxic surface self-esteem movement And we know that that child development movement failed horribly. It created what some people call generation narcissism. People acting all big 
on the outside while being anxiety-ridden balls of depression lacking any self-worth on the inside. That was done to the millennials for all the, you know, pot shots thrown at them in the press. And then, of course, we get Gen Z, which is the school shooter and COVID generation. And this is why I don't understand older people complaining about anxiety and depression in teens and young adults. There are reasons for these things. Every single one of us, when we were teens, heard the chorus of, kids today are no good, they're lazy, they're entitled, they don't understand hard work, I had to pull myself up from my bootstraps. Sorry, older adults. The kids are what you made them. Now, I consider myself lucky that I grew up Gen X because Gen X was the last generation that was allowed to really fail at things. Now, granted, we were allowed to fail too often, but at least we learned how to do it. But even when I was in high school, again, getting into the 90s, the idea that if you failed one test, your life would be ruined that was already getting actively ingrained because university education became near mandatory and there just weren't enough slots for the number of applicants. Sort of weird, you know, university education is the key to getting a good job. Not all of you can get it. That's messed up. That is, that is just the Hunger Games right there. We, we used to call Hunger Games type things... Um, Battle Dome, by the way. Thunderdome, Thunderdome from Mad Max, right. The Thunderdome. Hunger Games replaced Thunderdome as, as the metaphor. Didn't have Tina Turner, though. Anyway, I digress. If you have to get everything right the first public time, if you never have setbacks that you learn to recover from, you never really build self-worth. You don't get the sense that you matter things are going to be okay. So the rampant anxiety that we see in millennials and Gen Zers is completely understandable. And that's before you get to the chronic invalidation that these younger generations have always received because everything has to be crowd something, crowdsourced, crowdfunded. You're all friends here right? You're all on the same team. No, you're not. Back in, back in the day, back in the Gen X day, we could tell someone to, to buzz off. Buzz is not the word I want to say. We could even punch them in the face and not have zero tolerance school policies kick in. Now, I don't advocate punching someone in the face. The point is, it was a very different time. We weren't given the message that everyone had to like us or there was something wrong with us. At least I didn't get that until I was working in TV and I started in TV when I was still a teenager. I was still forming as a human. It was bad. And that's the thing. I got both sides because I came up very late Gen X, like two years before the cutoff, boom, me. 
And so I saw the Gen X attitudes. And then I saw millennials who weren't much younger than me being taught this thing that anger is always bad. A feeling that we all have sometimes is always bad. You can never feel it openly. It's always a problem. That's a hugely invalidating message. Many millennials were taught a a ridiculous, impossible catch-22 double standard. They were taught, if someone's angry at you, you must have done something wrong. But they were also taught that being angry yourself is never okay. That's messed up, but that's very real. I work with people every week and we're trying to rewire that. You know, if somebody's angry at you, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. And you being angry is sometimes totally okay. And yes, this messed up mixed message were taught to millennials by their Gen X parents who were scarred by too much yelling and anger everywhere. It's not an improvement. We're just trading one set of problems for another. It's trading one set of invalidation for another invalidation. And that's the problem with teaching validation, teaching the idea of validation and self-validation. Examples of invalidating behavior are normalized, not just through family and social groups, but the media. The media treats invalidating behavior and sometimes abusive behavior as romantic, exciting, or funny. So large parts of what I'm about to say here are likely going to sound strange to a lot of people. Just give me a chance, okay? When a behavior is frightening you and you tell someone that and they don't make an attempt to curb it, They're basically like, I don't care. You deserve it. That's invalidating. When someone treats you like your anger is the problem, not just how you express it, the actual feeling, that's invalidating. The method of invalidation on this or or any other thing, when you're treated like you as a person don't matter, Your feelings don't matter. People don't focus just on your behavior, but you as a person, the method doesn't matter. The invalidation itself is what leads to reduced feelings of self-worth. Now, to be really clear, not all criticism is invalidation. And sometimes the line between criticism and invalidation is hard to spot. But broad strokes, even if someone can't take away your hurt feelings, no no one can, no one makes somebody feel something so they can't take away the feeling either. They can validate those hurt feelings. They can care. They can make it very clear that your feelings are real and they matter. And sometimes even people who are trying to help invalidate feelings. Don't let it bother you. Don't let them get to you. Just ignore ignore them. (sighs) Well-meaning, not helpful. And like I said, it doesn't mean people have to agree with your behavior based on your feelings. Again, no one makes 
someone behave badly. No matter how upset you are, you have choices. It's totally fair for someone to say, I understand that you're angry. I just can't stand here and let you yell at me. If you continue, I'll end the conversation. It's very possible to be angry and not out of control. You don't have to like that boundary. You do have to respect it. Top 10 phrase. It's there for a reason. People don't have to like your boundaries. They do have to respect them. And for God's sakes, if someone says, can you please stop yelling at me? Don't say I'm not yelling in response. You might not have realized it. You might not have been yelling out of anger. There are, you know, I joke with friends of mine from, you know, cultures like some of mine that just loud loud is a thing right we joke about oh no that's friendly yelling as opposed to angry yelling right but if someone says please stop yelling at me you're clearly being too loud and aggressive for the other person to deal so validate that by saying i didn't realize how loud i was i'll try to watch that it doesn't mean the point you were trying to make wasn't valid. It's just people can't listen effectively when they feel like they're in the middle of a hurricane. Now, people get very jumpy at this point about bad past experiences being manipulated or gaslit by someone. You're yelling at me, right? If you think you're being manipulated or gaslit by someone's responses in this regard, someone insisting you're angry when you're not hyping it up beyond what you actually said this is very possible that does happen if you actually think this is going on with somebody this is not a person you're going to be able to reason with while they're doing those behaviors so real talk you may want to consider an exit strategy there but make sure you tell them what the issue is don't just ghost misunderstandings happen my god I want ghosting to go away it's ghosting is so invalidating people get really really damaged just losing someone and not knowing why confused yeah it's confusing this is why self-worth is so important Self-worth is that thing that lets you trust your gut when something just feels wrong. And there was a period where I was so beaten down that I kept second-guessing my gut instincts. And it got me nowhere good. That sense that something isn't right, that things hurt, that's there for a reason. But the thing about self-worth is that it isn't just about what you will tolerate or what you think is okay, how you're treated. It leads you to treating other people better as well. So if you've come from an abusive background, really understanding inherent worth of humans is essential to breaking that cycle. And we'll talk more about that after our next break. Again, anything inspires a question, comment, or suggestion, nottherapyshow.com, fill out the contact form, or email me, Leanna, at NotTherapyShow or at NotTherapyShow on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be back in a bit. The 
The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Back on It's Not Therapy, I'm Leanna Kirster. I'm still not a therapist and we're still talking about self-worth. And before the break, I promised that we'd talk about how self-worth means you treat other people better, not just treat yourself better. Think about it. If you have inherent worth, then so does everyone else. That means that there are certain things that you just don't do to other people. No matter how upset you are, no matter how upset they're quote unquote making you, they're responsible for them. You're responsible for you. Top 10 phrase, don't let problems that aren't your fault lead to mistakes that are. A particular cognitive distortion that I had for a really long time was that I had to do things that I really didn't have to. Yeah, there are some things I do just to go along to get along, but I'm much happier seeing those things as conscious choices as opposed to things I have to do. But to get to that happier place, I had to break some codependencies and lose some abusive people. And it was hard. It was painful. And it was absolutely worth it. Even if a part of me still misses some of those people sometimes. The end result of this painful journey is that you made me is practically removed from my vocabulary. Yeah, the government makes you pay taxes. The police and courts make you obey the law. But there's no mind control there. Don't pay taxes. Break the law. You can. Just be prepared to accept the consequences of that. They're predictable. Again, no one makes me do anything. You know, yes, abuse, coercive control, these are real things. But that's why they're abusive. Under normal circumstances, people have choices. I do some things I don't want to do because I decide all the available other options are worse. That's not being forced. That's a conscious choice I made. And this came out of deciding I was worth more than being afraid all of the time. And again, that is not minimizing abuse. Abuse is abuse. Abuse is about structural power. We just all have more choices than we start off realizing. And I don't know exactly... I mean, I know the broad strokes of how I got here. I did the work. But one day, this just seemed like reality, right? I have choices. I'm not quite sure exactly what did it. Other than I got to the point where feeling like I didn't have choices was worse than accepting that I had a whole bunch of bad ones. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life feeling like I was worthless and couldn't do anything right. I wanted to matter. 
no matter how many of my family members and so-called friends were making me out to be the problem. And bosses and co-workers and, 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 and. Finally, I thought, all right, if I'm the problem, I'm also a solution. Bye, Felicia Zalia. I decided that if I was destined to not meet people's expectations, I was going to make that my thing. I was going to be a walking surprise. I just, I couldn't care anymore about what all these people thought because it was getting in the way of what I thought about myself. But with that, there's a trade-off. With that is the intense desire to not be like them, to not play their game. No more, I had to, you made me, I had no choice. You know, a big part of PTSD therapy is getting it through your traumatized head that you can stop. You don't have to counterattack all the time. People can beat you. People can mock you. People can ostracize you. But you make choices. Even when the choices are all varying degrees of bad. Pick the bad choice that hurts you the least. And hurts you the least long term. I haven't mentioned happy math in a while. But this scenario is big time happy math. Short term acute pain is often better than long-term misery and fear. Now, self-worth for me means making promises to myself that I keep. I will be me at all costs. I will not let anyone ever again cause me to think I have to be someone I'm not. For some reason, I've never been a person who does well in those really ugly fights. I've never felt powerful saying something knowingly hurtful or primarily to hurt someone. I didn't understand for a long time that, that this, this part of me, this was my big orange splot. This was my sense of myself as an individual, where I like to be. Looking like all my dreams. My dream is a corner of the world where people don't feel scared the majority of the time. That corner of the world where people trust they'll be treated fairly. They're not coddled. But they can succeed if they put in some real work. And for that dream, that corner of the world, to be a reality, that has to start with me. I have to be that. And that's where my self-worth recognizes the worth of others. And that results in me not minimizing or dismissing someone's sincere feelings. Me validating someone's sincere feelings. I don't reject people, only behaviors. I don't tell people what to feel. You know, so phrases like don't be mad, don't cry, smile for me, those are out. I find those phrases manipulative. That may not be the intent, but asking people to mask or fake feelings, not, not in my world. I try, impossible, 
to validate a person when I have to correct them on something. And again, not manipulative stuff. Like, I can see that you're trying to do something good. Therapists do this all the time. Even when they're turning down interviews, they say, I can see like you're trying to do something good. It's just every single time. It's so condescending. It's so nonsense boilerplate. No, I try to validate with things like, you're a good person, you're skilled, you're talented, you just had an off day, or you're important to me, so I'm telling you this so you know when I have a chance to correct it, even if it may be hard to hear. And this comes out of personal experience. One of the things that made me feel the most worthless in my life was when people close to me didn't tell me there were problems until it was too late to do anything about those problems. It was impossible to understand the problems, never mind actually fix them. They may have meant well. Not only, though, did they deny me choices, but the reason they gave for denying me those choices was because I'd get upset if they told me. Like I wasn't more upset now that it was too late to fix anything. So I do my absolute best to never put people in that position. I go out of my way to have the tough conversation as soon as possible, give them clear goals for improvement, give them the chances. You know, yeah, it's hard to hear. But it's harder when you don't get those chances. I know because I didn't get them. Me in those situations, I felt... Like people were treating me like I had no worth. When you think about it, oh, I didn't tell you because you get upset. Now you're bearing the consequences of it. That's making someone a convenient scapegoat to blame because other people couldn't have tough conversations. That's harsh. But that that's that's what it is if you look at it plainly. I never, ever want to do that to anybody else because of how worthless, how unimportant, how superfluous it made me feel. People always know when I have issues with something they're doing. They don't have to worry that I'm secretly harboring resentments because resentment, that's also a choice. If I can't shake resentments I have someone for someone, it means something has to get solved or I need space. And that doesn't mean that telling someone what the issue is means they're automatically going to change. Nine times out of ten, they don't. But at least I know I told them. They had the chances I didn't get. There are some people in my life I've had to stop associating with because I felt myself starting to hate them. And I'm worth more than hate. They're worth more than hate. I still care about them. Or just some people I care about best from a distance. Because they don't understand boundaries. And that's the cool thing about healthy self-worth. It makes moral and interpersonal choices much more clear. Self-worth is great that way. You don't really agonize... You behave based on a consistent sense of self 
And if people call you names, you know, they're not true. People who do the name calling thing, they hate themselves or they hate a part of themselves. The part that they're connecting to by calling people names. They're treating people like they're worthless when it's the really mean name calling because it's reflecting a part of them that feels worthless. And that's the big secret. That's the big Oprah aha, right? That's the core of the person who abused you. Abusive people hate themselves. No, it's, it's true. Abusive people hate themselves. That realization helped me heal from abuse and understand how abuse works. It was the keystone in my understanding of how to tell the difference between abusive and non-abusive behavior. And here's, here's a brief do's and don'ts. I'm afraid it may confuse people more than help, but this is all I can do in this format. This is why I do one-on-one -on -one counseling stuff. Loving behavior focuses on criticizing behavior and dealing with outcomes, not intents or character. Loving behavior lets you express your feelings, cares about your feelings, and validates your feelings. Loving behavior sets boundaries about what someone will or will not accept, not what another person must or must not do. Loving behavior provides you with the information you need to make informed choices that are good for you. Loving behavior involves sincere apologies. It doesn't make you responsible for another person's behavior. Loving behavior works with the other person to create an agreement going forward that both parties agree to. Loving behavior means hurts may not heal right away, but non-abusive people work to avoid grudges. Now, abusive behavior, on the other hand, abusive behavior attacks your intents. Mind reading, intense, and attacks you as a person. It insists that your feelings and comfort don't matter because what you did was that terrible. Abusive behavior demands compelled actions or specific wording, even if that stuff doesn't make sense to you or actively feels wrong. Abusive behavior involves, sorry you feel that way, I'm sorry, but, and other non-apologies instead of sincere apologies. Abusive behavior withholds critical information through lies and omissions that change the way you behave. What that means is if somebody holds something back from you that if you'd known you'd have behaved differently, that's manipulative. Abusive behavior sets rules for you to follow that you don't have a say in and that you're punished for not following. And that can include, you know, locking you out of your computer, changing Wi-Fi passwords, security alarm codes, things like that. Abusive behavior takes away choices because self-worth means you do have choices. So after the break, one more, I'm going to come back and briefly tell you techniques I developed for building self-worth. Again, they may not work for you, but they may be a starting point for something that does. So any questions, concerns, or comments, Leanna at Not Therapy Show by email, nottherapyshow.com if you want to fill out the contact form, at Not Therapy Show on Twitter, Twitter and Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. 
We'll be back after this. Final thoughts on It's Not Therapy. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Back on It's Not Therapy, I am Leanna Kersner. I am still not a therapist. I got four minutes left. So we've been talking about self-worth. How did I build self-worth? And this is something you can try. Well, it starts real simple. What do you like about yourself? There's gotta be something. Are you considerate, conscientious? You know, do you sincerely care about other people's feelings? Do you sincerely try to be a good person? That is inherently worthy and no one can take that from you. Mistakes don't change that. That is good, right? Next question that might take more work. What do you like about yourself that other people criticize? There are so many things that people don't like and I like about myself. So I gave that part a name based on the God of War character Kratos from a video game because that's all the stubborn battling parts of me that I value and some people just don't get. Giving that part a name helps communicate to yourself and others why that part of you is something you don't want to change. Now, look at the positive reactions, the good points, the negative reactions to that particular part of you people don't like, but you don't want to change. What do you value about it? One, because it's honest, creative, loyal, you know, what are the trade-offs? What are the good? What is, some people call this shadow work, I'm just like pros and cons organizing, right? Now, big question. You want to keep that part of yourself, that inner aspect. What behaviors are you willing to compromise on to keep that part of you intact and safe and protected and valid while minimizing negative reactions? That is central to making positive changes instead of feeling like you're just ripping your guts out and trying to reinvent yourself from other people for other people again and again and again now have this conversation with people you can trust because feedback loops in social circles are incredibly important and those conversations will teach you which people have your back who you can trust with your back turned and your eyes closed And which people you may need distance from or, you know, may have to go, you know, because the people who get you will get you and they got you and somebody can't get you until you understand yourself and can communicate yourself. And again, that's a learned skill. It does not come naturally instantly to some people and not others other people were guided on this path you may have to do it yourself and doing it yourself is tough but not impossible i can you can too raw raw pep talk i'm not good at these okay so that's our time for this week uh we've got one more guest next week and then we're gonna go into a section on healthy conflict which is why i wanted to do the self-worth 
bit now. The Bubbleheads are going to be back soon. You guys love the Bubbleheads. So uh, until then, I'm Leanna Kersner. I'm still not a therapist. This has been It's Not Therapy. Try this stuff. Even that little bit of extra self-worth you can get, it's worth all the work. It is so foundational. And it's the core of why I say your crazy is only a problem if it's hurting you.